Many of us aim to reflect God in our daily lives. But if the Antichrist is an impersonator of God, how do we tell if we're really reflecting God or not? Welcome back. I'm your host, Valerie, and this is Anti. Maze. We know the Antichrist's inception and development, its strengths and weaknesses, and its endgame. But we're not quite ready to nosedive in the book of Revelations yet. First, we need to learn how to recognize an Antichrist system, as well as we have learned how to identify Antichrist operations and consequences. Humanity is a maze of mirrors. Some people reflect God in their lives and are therefore mirrors of God. Some are mirrors of the Antichrist. Some are mirrors of multiple gods or virtues. Some are even mirrors of their ancestors. Even still, some are mirrors of nothing but their own will. It is important here to clarify that the deities of religions outside of Christendom are not the Antichrist. They are simply other gods. The Antichrist doesn't care about other gods and is not trying to impersonate them. The Antichrist is trying to impersonate the Christian God. With that being said, with so many different mirrors, it can be easy for anyone to get lost or confused. This episode is all about learning to tell apart the God mirrors from the Antichrist mirrors. I think it is important for everyone to be able to know the difference, even and especially if you reflect neither the Christian God nor the Antichrist. Since mirrors of God are the targets, and mirrors of the Antichrist are the pawns, everyone else actually has the least biased view, and less bias means clearer judgment. Everyone, regardless, needs to be able to tell what they are reflecting. If we see better, we'll know better, and if we know better, we will have what we need to do better. The fewer pawns that the Antichrist has to manipulate and deceive, the more we will lessen how many people the Antichrist is able to convert from deception to corruption. The more we impact that conversion factor, then the more we will be able to heal the major political rift in America and the world at large. Offensive Generosity We can never lose sight of the Antichrist's endgame. It's not to corrupt half of cars, or half of trees, or half of animals. The end game is to corrupt half of humanity. One side has to be able to look at the other and see monsters instead of humans. Right now, if you had a loved one in front of you and a spider, which one would be easier to beat to a pulp? Exactly. And the reason why is because you don't see it as human. The sad truth is, The outcome might very well be the same if you had a loved one in front of you and someone you hated. I do not say this to infer that you might be a barbarian, but rather to reveal how programmed we all have been to see those that we disagree with as somehow less than human. So in other words, we dehumanize those that we disagree with. To an innocuous degree, this is an innate primitive instinct that we use to protect ourselves. But beyond that, it requires a system of oppressive productivism, where those who produce more are valued more, 
And furthermore, those who produce more of what we value, even if they produce things that we value that are actually toxic to society. The rote heuristic that we end up developing in this kind of environment is that if I do more that is meaningful, then that means that I deserve not necessarily more, but I deserve preeminence. I deserve supremacy. I deserve to be first and prioritized over others. Such was the mentality of the morning sowers in the parable of Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Jesus told a story about a landowner who went out from his field in search of workers who were out of a job. In the morning, he found some idle workers and he employed them, agreeing to pay them a day's wages for their work. In the afternoon, he found some more idle workers, agreeing to pay them the same. And in the evening, he found even more idle workers, also agreeing to pay them the same. Therefore, when the day was over and the workers were paid, the landowner paid everyone as agreed, but the morning workers were offended. They weren't asking the landowner to pay them more money. They were content with whatever it was that they agreed to. They just wished that the landowner had paid the other workers less. Jesus implied through this story that they were offended in this way because they were working with the spirit of preeminence. The fact that they desired for the landowner to change his terms, not with them, but with the other workers, showed that they wanted preeminence over the other workers. And they also wanted preeminence over the landowner's terms. Therefore, an easy way to identify someone who reflects the Antichrist is that they will gladly use their grievances or their offense as an excuse to impose upon the rights of others. Similar to how Jonah hated God's generosity of grace to the Ninevites, mirrors of the Antichrist want God to blame and punish others for doing less than them, rather than sharing His grace equally. Mirrors of the Antichrist will often have feelings of resentment toward non-Christians or just people they disapprove of in general who appear to be better off than them. She doesn't go to church every Sunday and yet she has children and I don't. He doesn't read the Bible or pray like I do and yet he got that promotion that he wanted and I seem to be barely making ends meet. It isn't that the mirrors of the Antichrist demand that God pay them more, they simply want God to pay the others less. This is rooted in a spirit of false preeminence, where they believe that they ought to be prioritized by God before anyone else. Inadvertently, this not only puts the other quote-unquote workers beneath them, this also puts God beneath them as well, because God would have to be subjugated to their bare minimums. When we subject God to our bare minimums, it's just a passive form of tyrannical ultimatums. I hope you will forgive my strong language here, but the reality is this is no different than conditional service. Out of all that he went through, Job said, God has given and God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So what exactly makes us feel entitled to say, God, I don't deserve to be worse off than so-and-so? It's okay to want better for ourselves, but it is not okay that better for ourselves must require that others lose out. It is not okay for our comfort to require the disease of others. It is not okay that our freedom require the oppression of others.
Selfish Believer It is true, Jesus only called the Antichrist out by name one time during his ministry. However, most, if not all, of Jesus' parables were used as tools to help teach his followers how to distinguish mirrors of the Antichrist from mirrors of God, especially those parables that began with, And the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus taught this through more than just his parables, but also through his life and ministry in general. Even while he was dying, we could see a clear depiction of the difference between a mirror of God versus a mirror of the Antichrist as they hung to his left and his right while he was dying on the cross. It was the criminal on the left that remembered that both he and the other malefactor were in the same predicament together and should therefore be humble and respectful to Jesus, who was actually proven innocent in court even though he was still crucified by his own people. Mirrors of God are willing to admit their own failures. They are willing to stand back when they realize that their way isn't working anymore. They are willing to repent when they realize that they've gotten off track. They are willing to apologize and amend their wrongs. But mirrors of the Antichrist only care about not getting caught. The criminal to the right said, If you really are Christ, then save yourself and us. Get us out of this. He didn't say this because he cared about the other criminal's freedom. We know he didn't care about the other criminal because he was mocking Jesus with this statement. This was an act of selfishness. Jesus prayed in Gethsemane that if there was any way for God to get him out of that predicament, but in the end Jesus decided to die. The Antichrist deceives its members into thinking that dying is the problem. No. Jesus said the one who seeks to save his own skin is the one who's going to miss out. It's the one who is willing to lose their lives for God who is going to win. This right-side malefactor a reasonable typification of an Antichrist mirror, wanted to shortcut the process to the crown. The left-side criminal actually saw it. The glory is in me accounting for my sins. But the other criminal wanted a way out. To miss the cross and still hold on to the crown in the end. Jesus does want to save each and every one of us, but not like that. You have to be willing to pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. You have to be willing to give up your right to save your own skin if you really want to walk with Jesus. This may mean that you have to give up the long-standing benefits of white supremacy and white privilege. This may mean that you have to separate yourself from the long-standing benefits of fossil fuels for a healthier planet and environment. This may mean that you have to use your platform and your voice to denounce police brutality on certain demographics of people, even if it costs you something. This may mean that you have to stand up against control over women's bodies and rights, even if it costs you a few donors. Jesus never said that this was going to be easy. He did say pick up your cross, not your sack of bricks. That doesn't mean be prepared to work hard. That means be prepared to die to a version of yourself that you would rather cling on to. This is going to be a painful decision, but the ones that are willing to do it prove themselves to be mirrors of God. And the one who resists it by any means necessary proves themselves to be mirrors of the Antichrist. Why does it have to be like that? Because in the kingdom of God, the greatest serve the least. That's what eternal life is going to look like. 
so miss me with that, it's going to make my life hard. The Antichrist capitalizes on those kinds of excuses and sells it to the highest bidder. More after this. Hey, want to stay up to date on the latest anti-podcast episodes or be the first to hear the cinematic audiobook release date for Kingdom of Gold? Just head on over to my website, kaylin.info, to stay up to date on all the things you need to know. That's C-A-Y-L-A-N dot info. You can also stay connected with me by following me on Instagram or TikTok. You can find all of my social media handles on my website at kaylin.info. That's C-A-Y-L-A-N dot I-N-F-O. Two Kingdoms In Matthew 22, verse 39, Jesus gives us the two commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Based on 2 Timothy 3.16 and Hebrews 5, verse 9, Biblical scripture is inerrant or without sin, but it is also perfectible. The Word of God is constantly being fulfilled or completed by Jesus Christ. Therefore, as Christ finishes His Word, His Spirit completes us, for we are to be perfect or complete as God is complete. This implies that the written and living Word of God grows with humanity for humanity. The living Word of God abides with us from day to day whether written or spoken. We must expect and be prepared for His Word to evolve and grow. God may tell us that He will provide for us in the wilderness one day and then tell us to prepare our own meals the next. God established the rules for the Passover lamb one day and generations later said, I am the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. We did need a temple in older times, but then God sent His Son to save us And one day, according to Revelation 21, we won't even need a temple anymore because we will be with Jesus again. So if the Word of God is without sin, why does it need to change? I think that's because we need to change. We didn't love God first. The only reason we love God is because He first loved us. And our capacity to change is no different. The reason we are able to change is because God first changed Himself for us. Hebrews 8 verse 13 says, A new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. This does not mean that the New Testament destroyed the Old Testament. This means the New Testament fulfilled it. The same way that a full-grown plant fulfills its seed shell. However, there is something scary about this transition. I call it the seed sprout dynamic. Because the only way for a plant to fulfill its shell is to break it, a little resistance is expected. But there is a seed sprout dynamic between two completely different kingdoms, and it is more of a war than mere resistance. The kingdom of God mirrors God in the earth because it is always growing, plain and simple. The kingdom of God is flexible, resilient, and evolving, but mirrors of the Antichrist are like a shell that refuses to open. As long as the shell remains intact, not only does the plant lose potential and die, but the seed altogether eventually dies. Unless the old covenant falls to the ground like a seed shell and dies, the new one will never manifest. 
and the mission of the church, which operates under the new covenant, is to facilitate the redemption of humanity back into the divine embrace. The Antichrist is going to do everything it can to prevent that from happening, because to the devil, the undeserving shouldn't be redeemed. They should be punished. Like the right-side criminal, mirrors of the Antichrist are only looking out for themselves, looking to be served rather than for ways to serve. Jesus said that the greatest person in the kingdom would be like a servant. But the Antichrist wants you to think that heaven is about exacting vengeance for all your grievances on earth, that heaven is some sort of vendetta hit list, or that heaven is just a place to be served. The Antichrist wants you to think that women are property, or seconds and not equals. There is a difference between order and value. I understand that the number one comes before two, but that doesn't make one greater than two. The order of Adam is not an excuse to undermine the value of Eve. You are allowed to have order and value at the same time. And you are allowed to have order that might be different from the order of somebody else. The kingdom of God is not classist. It's not traditionalist. It's not supremacist. And it's not escapist either. Escapism. The tendency to always want to run away from anything unpleasant or uncomfortable is escapism. Chronic procrastination, anxious avoidance, and even abuse and persecution are symptoms of escapism. Escapists do whatever is necessary to avoid confronting the problem directly. Because an escapist is aware that the cost of directly confronting the problem is too high for them to afford. And because an escapist has an integrity that is too cheap to afford what the moment or the experience calls for, they escape. Escapism is not, I repeat, escapism is not a cultural problem. It is not a comfort problem. It is a character problem. And until we really understand this, we will not be able to confront a lot of the stalemated issues in social, political, and environmental justice that so desperately needs to be dealt with. God's omnipotence does not absolve us from sorting our own matters. It is perverted to expect Scripture to absolve us from social or personal responsibility. We cannot expect God to deal with us if we refuse to deal with our neighbor, especially the ones that believe or vote differently than we do. Debts must either be paid or forgiven, not merely vanish or fly away. Luke 11 verse 4. Arguments must be settled, not bribed away or ghosted. Matthew 5 verse 24. Trauma must be fully processed, not left undealt with. Matthew 5 verse 25 and 26. The kingdom of God is no place for abdicators of responsibility. It is for finishers. Matthew 25 verses 24 through 30. Problems are to be solved, not handed off or half done prior to entering the kingdom. It is for this mentality that we have to repent. The kingdom of God is not hypocrisy that affords us the luxury of living completely disassociated from those who live on a more brutal or lenient side of life than us. It is humanitarianism in deed and in truth. 1 John 3.18 The kingdom of God does not allow us the laziness of practicing religious protocols in the safety bubbles of those who think just like us. It requires us to grow up and be made whole 
by breaking out of our comfort zones until peace and love spread everywhere. Romans 14, verse 17. The church is responsible for finishing the work that God started in the church, even if it is painful, inconvenient, or frightening. If Jesus said, I am the vine, then that must mean the word has the ability to grow. When God commanded us, be thou perfect as I am perfect, the Hebrew transliteration of perfect does not mean without error. Perfect is a variant of holy, which means complete, whole, W-H-O-L-E, or mature. Holiness is wholeness. The church's responsibility is to grow as the word of God prods and prunes her to grow. We must therefore handle the gospel responsibly. Jesus said that if our witness is ever rejected, to dust off our shoes and move on. Matthew 10 verse 14. So this notion that forcing Christianity with legal and or violent enforcement is perversion. Coerced or asserted religion is not witnessing. That is persecution. Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 5. Matthew 11 verse 11 is probably one of the most abused scriptures in the Bible. It says, The kingdom of God suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. If the only way for you to share the gospel of the kingdom of God is mere force, that is religious extremism, which is a precursor of terrorism. Even under his own Roman persecutor, Tiberius Caesar, Jesus shared the gospel with the Samaritan woman, the Roman centurion, and the Syrophoenician woman without forcing their cultures to bow to his own. Why would Jesus do that? Because if he had oppressed their views or their cultures, Jesus would have robbed away the ability for them to freely receive him by faith. Faith is an uncoerced belief, an unintimidated belief. Romans 14.23 says that anything devoid of faith is sin, and Jesus cannot sin, nor can he force others to act without faith and therefore sin. Oppression kills hope which is a requirement to have faith, based on Hebrews 11 verse 1. So if you oppress, persecute, or coerce, the recipient will have no hope, and therefore no faith. Scripture repeatedly shows us that lording over the lives and the cultures of others results in sin because it crucifies any possibility of faith. Toxic Patterns Sometimes it doesn't take a spirit of discernment to tell the difference between a mirror of God and a mirror of the Antichrist. Every now and then it only takes the ability to examine the patterns. Particularly toxic patterns indicate a rotten source, and the patterns of the devil have most definitely been rotten since the Garden of Eden. Eve lorded over Adam and the result was sin and exile. Cain lorded over Abel, and the result was murder. Laban lorded over Jacob, and the result was estrangement. Pharaoh lorded over the Israelites, and the result was the death of the Egyptian heir. Pharisees lorded over peasant Jews, and the result was hypocritical nationalism and social-political polarizations. Germans lorded over the Jews, and the result was the Holocaust. Whites lorded over blacks, and the result was 400-plus years of cruel enslavement and segregation along with ethnic, economic, and educational disparities. And the toxic patterns continue. The Taliban lord over the Afghans. 
Americans lord over natives. Putin lords over Ukrainians. Men lord over women. Christian extremists and traditionalists lord over leftist political groups like those who believe in abortion, privacy, and marriage equality rights. God so loved the world that he sent his son before Christianity ever existed. Therefore, he didn't send his son so that whoever converted to Christianity would have eternal life. He sent his son so that whoever believed in his son would have eternal life. All of this Christian extremism and Christian capitalism, it's not about exhorting the Christian way at all. It's just simply about having power over others. The gospel was never the point with him. The power was. And as all oppressions work, eventually the cruelty becomes the point. Judgment To me, one of the greatest sermons that Jesus ever preached was Matthew 25, which is comprised of three consecutive parables. The wise and the foolish virgins, the talents, and the sheep and the goats. Jesus preached an eschatological, or end-time, sermon about how we will be judged in the end. These stories, part narrative and part prophecy, distinguish the three levels of judgment and in what member of the Godhead each level of judgment will be completed. Whoa, wait a minute. Levels of judgment? What's that? I'm glad you asked. Judgment is threefold because God is threefold. God must judge us as He is, not as we are, if He's going to completely redeem us. Many people think that we are threefold, body, soul, and spirit, because God is threefold. However, this notion is actually not found in Scripture, because the terms soul and spirit are used interchangeably in Scripture, implying that the existence of humanity is actually twofold. But that doesn't mean that human trichotomy is false. I believe that our existence is twofold, as scripture supports, but our experience is most definitely threefold. Psychology and physiology put a difference between mind and the brain. This is why I cannot see a counselor for something only a neurosurgeon can treat. Therefore, twofold humanity has a threefold experience that yields three outcomes our identity, which is who we are, our actions, what we do and our beliefs, what we know. Each outcome is finite and must therefore be judged independently, hence three levels of judgment. In Revelations, we will see these levels of judgment play out through the Song of the Spirit in Revelation 14, the reaping of the grapes also in Revelation 14, and the great white throne in Revelation chapter 20. Now, by three levels of judgment, I don't mean three completely separate judgment sessions. I just mean that the justice process of God examines us on more than one plane at the same time. God not only takes into consideration our actions, but also our identity and our beliefs. This is why a soldier and a criminal gang member will be judged differently at the throne of God, even though they both killed with weapons. It is possible to be both imperfect and blameless at the same time. The Great White Throne of Judgment is the ultimate distinguishing ceremony. In this ceremony, the good will be completely set apart from the evil. This is the last time where the mirrors of God will be distinguished from the mirrors of the Antichrist. And the purpose of Jesus' sermon in Matthew 25 is to reveal the threefold judgment criterion for both groups. 
what we believe will be judged by the paraclete, as he resides within us and knows our thoughts, even beyond our own self-deceptions. What we do will be accounted for by Christ, as he weighs our actions based on motive. Who we are will be judged by the Father, as he distinguishes sheep from goats, with believers to his right and unbelievers to his left. The Father knows who we really are from eternity. We must know the Son as He really is in order to be saved, and the Spirit helps us to know ourselves as we really are in every moment. A truly incredible parallel between the Matthew 25 sermon and the three levels of judgment in Revelation is this. Both the Song of the Spirit and the first parable are centered on virgins. The reaping of the harvest and the second parable center on profitable returns. And the great white throne and the last parable both center on distinguishing the good from the wicked. But the parable of the sheep and the goats come with a striking moral. Neither the good nor the evil were ever aware that they had either served or rejected God. Grace for the Least Both the sheep and the goats asked God, When did we ever feed you, clothe you, or visit you in prison? God answered both, Whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. By drawing a direct parallel from God to others, this last parable invokes the two commandments Jesus spoke just three chapters earlier, Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. This means that the parable of the sheep and the goats is not about mere charity. It's about justice. The entire sermon is about justice. Justice or righteousness means doing right by God, which is virtually equivalent to doing right by your neighbor. Because if you allege to love God, but you mistreat your neighbor, you are a liar. Sad to say, members of the Antichrist cannot love the neighbors that they've deemed unworthy without getting sick to their stomach. Antichrist cannot love God which is why mirrors of the Antichrist feel that doing right by their neighbor, especially the ones that they disagree with, is a show of weakness or betrayal. The self-serving drive of mirrors of the Antichrist tempts them to instead take advantage of the least of these. But by rejecting the least of these, they rejected God. By abusing the least, they abused God. They didn't just systematically murder six million Jews and innocents. They did that to God. They didn't just invent the first police force called the slave patrols to terrorize African Americans. They didn't just violently overrun and desecrate the U.S. Capitol. They didn't just disinherit Palestinians, even refusing to let them bury their dead in peace. They didn't just violently imprison and brutalize Iranian women and activists. They didn't just commit war crimes against Ukrainians since 2014. They did all of that to God, too. While I do take solace in the fact that they will one day have to answer for that to God, until that day, they are my neighbor, too. How could Jesus look upon the men gambling for his clothes and ask God to forgive them? How could Jesus praise the centurion's faith even though that Roman was one of his own oppressors. I'm sure you have questions of your own. How could God expect me to love a person who gets an abortion at six weeks? How could he expect me to love a person who wants to enter my country illegally? How am I expected, no, 
commanded to show any ounce of love to the police officers who murdered my black child. How dare God ask me to love an elected official who has virtually banned my history out of the state educational system? These are hard questions, and they're all fair, all of them. But God says we must love them too. Not as we were conditioned to love, but as we would love ourselves if we were in the same position. So then clearly this begs the question, how would you love yourself if God suddenly turned you into the person that you disagree with or hate? Would you keep that same level of energy or would you do something different? If the answer is the latter, then clearly you do have grace that you are withholding for your own selfish advantage. I'll say this again, I know my language is strong here, but if we don't deal with this honestly now, we will continue to enable the absolute worst in us. And I can promise you that the vicious cycle you are fighting so hard to get out of will continue. I think that God is furious enough with how we use his law and scripture to justify heinous things like misogyny, violence, or racism. But Jesus used grace to fulfill the law. Therefore, to violate grace is no different than violating every single law at the same time. So how do you think God feels when we mishandle his grace for our own selfish advantage? Before I close, I want you just to get a picture in your mind right now and think about the person you disagree with the most. They could be a relative, an elected official, a coworker, you name it. That person right now is your them. If you feel a lot less different than them right now than you did at the beginning of this episode or even the beginning of this podcast, that is good. That means we're making progress in closing the rift of the hatred divide. I just needed you to understand that this is just a microcosm of what national healing feels like. This anti-episode was written, edited, and produced by me, thanks to the all-in-one podcasting app, Anchor. For access to all citations and references for this episode, please click the link, which will take you directly to the website page. Please like and share this podcast if you enjoyed it, and feel free to rate and leave a review next time on Anti. There is an interesting message campaign the false prophet system fabricates in Revelation chapter 13, verses 15 through 17, called the image of the beast. Though it was just called an image, this image apparently could speak and order executions from the highest levels of power. The false prophet launches this campaign against any who are disloyal so that they are killed, whether that be literal or figuratively speaking. <laughs>